Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. That's where we get the palm idea. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the, high, in, in the highest heaven. From the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 7 through 10 in the New Revised Standard Version. So we come to the week of weeks. We come to Holy Week. And it's the week of weeks, not just for Jesus and his followers, but really for the entire church. If you think about it historically, you don't have to be a Christian or anything to be able to make this sort of claim. This, this week changed, changed culture, Western culture, uh, Middle Eastern culture. It changed everything. Up to our day, the world changed, the world that we know. And it began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then he clears the temple. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, this is in all four Gospels, by the way. John does a different little arrangement. But in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he clears the temple. He curses a fig tree. He weeps over Jerusalem and leaves the city during that week, at night, you, during the Passover week, you could not stay in the city limits, so they go across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane out in Bethany. And the symbolism, the symbolism then of Passover week is super thick with the lamb being slain and prepared for the Passover meal and then the angel of death that passes over the people who are marked with the blood back just before the Exodus. Remember Moses and all that and the Passover and the blood on the post and lintel and all that? And Jesus is leaning into this, and it is time. It is his time. He's put it off now for years. He knows this is his destiny. He knows this is what he's supposed to do, and he has come to this time. And so what I want to explore this morning is just Jesus as the most very, very ordinary man, the most ordinary of human beings, because we all too easily quickly slip into this idea that Jesus is this sort of divine man, that he's this sort of angelic being or whatever, and he's not ordinary really at all. Granted, he, he behaves extraordinary, but he is a very ordinary man. Doesn't it sound like the most crazy week in a human being's life? Anybody's life who would knew they were going to die at the end of the week, would it not be the most crazy of weeks? Would not be the anxiety and the stress and just the freaked outness being incredibly intense. Would it not just be, in our modern vernacular, it would just be trauma. It would be traumatic. So let's be clear. Jesus knows by the end of the week that it is his death and that his time has come. And Jesus said, he said this to his disciples, he said, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and everything that's been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he'll be mocked and insulted and spat upon and after they flog him, they'll kill him and on the third day he will rise again. And then Luke in 18 says this, but they didn't understand these things. Like really? Disciples, you did not understand what Jesus just said? Now granted, you know, we all have hindsight on this so we see it perfectly clear. They didn't get it. Why? Why would people not understand exactly what Jesus is saying? It's because they already had an idea in their head about who Jesus was, what was going to happen that week, and it was all going to be awesome and spectacular, and that's why they had the big parade coming into town. Jesus was about to have this week of weeks culminating in his ministry. 
I believe that Jesus' handling, his emotional state, his handling of things is very, very ordinary. And why I mean by that is that it's not really all that great. Holy Week is when an extraordinary human being behaves very ordinary. What do I mean? Well, look at the facts. The crowds cry out, Hosanna, and Jesus says nothing. It's fine. They put him on a colt, the symbol in Israel's history and in really surrounding cultures, of the entrance of a king coming in. He says nothing. I, I'll be your king is sort of the unspoken message. Go ahead. What's that do? Well, it just tells the people, like, we're doing the right thing. He doesn't say the thing like we'd expect the sort of holy man to do, like, oh, no, come on. Oh, shucks, everyone. You know, don't make me out to be something great. I'm just little old Jesus. None of that's going on. Big time stuff's going on. He tells them to even go get the colt, the sign of the king. Here it is. He's coming into the capital, Jerusalem. King David established that capital almost a thousand years earlier. And he accepts the royal gesture. Is he just playing along? Or is he thinking, this could work? I could be king. Glory and power are at his fingertips. The crowd is with him. And those fingertips then, in all of the anxiety of the week of weeks, curl around a, a bundle of ropes. And he drives the, the tax coin exchange people out of the temple. He drives out the exchange of pagan Roman money for uh, a special dispensation by the Jews. They got all sorts of special things out of the Romans of their own coinage. He, he throws out the people exchanging money for offerings like doves and so forth like that. He drives them all out. He is angry and he's violent. He is ordinary like an ordinary human would be at this point because the pressure is so much. I know, I know, I have the books on my shelves in my library that go to all sorts of lengths. I have a couple of scholars that go to extraordinary lengths to show that Jesus was not angry really and not violent. He never touched a person. Like, that is bogus. The, the man was angry and he did a violent act. He was lit. It was a righteous anger, no doubt. But he was behaving like a man under extreme pressure. Oh, and he curses the fig tree. Be barren. We come back later. It's barren. <laughs> it's a symbol, right? He's pretty ticked off to be cursing a lonely old, you know, measly tree. Openly, deliberately flaunting his power attractiveness to ordinary people. It's all right there. So ordinary for anybody, any human being who could be tempted by such things. Jesus is surrounded by his disciples who believe Jesus is about to be king like King David. Judas Iscariot says, I got this, I got this. And he thinks he's just going to push the whole thing. He's going to make it happen. He's going to make sure that Jesus becomes king just in case it doesn't quite work out. Oh yeah. And Peter, he's gathering swords for the army. They've got this. They've got it all figured out. They know exactly what's going to happen. 
And those disciples are blind and obtuse and they're head scratchers and zealots. And the disciples are obsessed with power and opportunity surging in the streets. It's the time of God. And it's going to happen. Ordinary, ordinary, ordinary people doing ordinary things. No one understands. No one understands that he is alone and in trouble. No one understands what's really going to happen that week. Jesus is absolutely consumed with everything. Just like any ordinary human being would be in the week of weeks. He is in the eye of the storm. And all around him the wind roars with the wind of human destiny. The hand of God is upon him. Will he go through with the calling? Will he do what his fathers asked him to do? The mission that's before him? Will he be the man of action? And then, at the end of the week, near the very end, Thursday, Friday, at the end, heading right to the crucifixion hours before, Jesus does this most extraordinary thing. He becomes silent. He becomes silent. The silence is called, in our Christianese, it's called contemplation. Contemplation means to take a second look. So Richard Rohr, that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago, he's a Franciscan monk. And uh, a lot of us have read his little books. And the pastors have even gone to be with Richard Rohr out at his ministry in New Mexico and listen to him and talk with him and discuss things. And Richard Rohr has a book called Action and Contemplation. He's got a couple of little books like that. Action and Contemplation. His ministry is even called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And action and contemplation is not a new idea. Richard Rohr got the idea from the Desert Fathers, right? From the 3rd century A.D. And uh, so Rohr didn't come up with it. But it's an easy concept. In the Christian life, you have action and you have contemplation. You can't have one without the other. You can't be all action and not do contemplation. You can't be all contemplation and not do action. It's the whole Martha Mary thing, right? Mary, uh, Martha's busy making the meal prep and stuff, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And there's Mary doing the contemplation, and there's Martha doing the action. And, you know, the Desert Father said, well, yeah, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And Richard Rohr, he says this. He says, action and contemplation. It's like action is the first gaze, what you first see, your first gaze, your first look. And contemplation is your second gaze, you know, the second thought. The, the contemplative thought, the one where you think about what's really going on. And I see this in Jesus' week, you know, all action, right, in the first part of the week. That's the first gaze, like anger, craziness going on all around him, hard to contain it, hard to hold it. And then by the end of the week, he goes silent, and he goes into this con- the second gaze, his contemplation. Jesus, in the midst of action, this week of week, full of action, riding in with Hosanna, clearing the temple, Fig trees, crying, the whole bit. He, he's just right up here. Reinterprets the Passover in the upper room of the Last Supper. Making I statements. I am the bread of life. I am the blood. But Jesus and his followers cannot be only action, right? Then, right there, 
after the meal's done and all the crowds are gone and they're across the valley in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples have all fallen asleep and he goes a few yards away and he begins to pray, Father, this is it. If there's any way, this cup could pass. And it says that he prayed sweat of blood, which is physiologically possible, by the way. And he goes silent. I've done a lot of contemplative prayer in my second half of life. That's what you do when you get a little older. And I can tell you sometimes when you're just alone with God for a day or two, you'll begin to pour out your heart to God and it feels like you're going to sweat blood sometimes. That second gaze, that contemplation, it's a lot of work. There's the first gaze and the second gaze. And the first gaze is your response. Clear the temple, curse the fig tree, make a bunch of speeches. And the second gaze is Jesus before Pilate. So are you king? Jesus, are you king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm king, but, this was, but this, uh, for this I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate rhetorically answers him, what is truth? And with that, Jesus stops answering. Aren't you going to defend yourself? Aren't you going to say anything? I, I, could, I have the power to let you go. You're not going to say anything? You're just, going to, you're just going to let me hand you over to the crowd? Those same people that a few days ago were crying out Hosanna, and you're going to let them just crucify you? You know how easy this is for you to just walk out of here? Silence. Second gaze is Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Second gaze is Jesus finally just going into complete silence. Silence is the prayer, is the prayer language of contemplation. It's what you do after all the action. What about us? What about our times? What about our action and contemplation? How have we done over the past year? Well, everyone, it appears American society has failed the second gaze contemplation test. I'm not even sure we passed the first gaze test of action. I mean, a lot of scientists got to work and came up with a vaccine. A lot of health workers knuckled down and they took care of us. A lot of, you know, fire and police and everybody else and everybody's doing all the systems. They took care of things. I'm not sure Washington did very well on the whole action thing. That's my opinion. I think we just freaked out at the pandemic. We failed the pandemic test. That's my assessment. That's my opinion. We failed the pandemic test, like I said last April. My mother and father fought against the Nazis in World War II. They gave up food, gasoline. They gathered copper and rubber to donate to the war cause. They, They gave up heating oil and coal. They bought war bonds with money they didn't have. They took care of their neighbors, and they defended the nation. My father protected the East Coast on a destroyer, and my mother riveted fighter planes in Oklahoma instead of going to college. All we were asked to do is sit on the sofa. 
We failed the test of the pandemic. Got all freaked out like ordinary human beings do, yeah. No second gaze too much. That's just my opinion. Richard Rohr said this about himself. He said, in my late 50s, I had plenty of opportunity to see my own failures and the shadow side of myself and my sin. The first gaze at myself was critical and negative and demanding and not helpful at all. And I'm convinced that such guilt and shame is never from God. They are merely the protestations of the false self, the defense of a little man who wants to be a big man. That's me. I'm just like that. I don't know what it is about Holy Week for me personally, but I just get kind of weird, as you can tell. Maybe it's the crazy stuff that Jesus goes through. Maybe I lean into it too heavy. Maybe I just try and live it out hour by hour. Maybe I just identify way too much with all the weirdness that was going on for Jesus. I'm thinking, like, how could a man go through that? I start thinking, like, I'm just a disciple. I'm just a runaway. One little moment of fear and like, oh, I'm out of here. deny Jesus like Peter. Man, I just get weird about it. That's what ordinary people do. They get weird under pressure. That's why we messed up the whole test. Maybe it's just performance pressure this week for me. Man, oh man, Easter's coming, man. We've got to have our A game on around here. Everybody all set? It's good. Staff, you know, everybody sharp. This is, our, this is it, man. Doesn't get any bigger. A game. Everybody on? Get all up tight. First gaze, first gaze, first gaze. Action, action, action. Let's get it done. Second gaze should really bring a sense of smallness. Second gaze says, I'm not really important. I'm nothing. That's the other thing to answer for the week. I'm okay with that. And Jesus, he passed that test because he went to the cross. And that's why he went silent. There was nothing left to say. I wrote on uh, some One Life update letters this week. Uh, Pastors were you know, giving you guys letters this week about updating. Maybe you got yours in the mail or whatever. But um, So maybe you got one of these letters. And, and um, your real test is whether or not you could read my handwriting at the bottom of the letter, uh, little notes that we were putting on there. And I kept writing, pay attention, uh, at the bottom of my letters. Um, and I wrote, because I wrote in my journal this week, pay attention. It's the week to pay attention. The week of weeks is the week where you pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. Sit up straight. Pay attention. It's the week of weeks, man. Second gaze, pay attention, resist distraction, focus on Jesus' week. Today, he rides in his king, but by Friday, he'll give up the ghost. Pay attention, listen to every word. Don't be like the disciples and get confused about what's going on. Take the journey. As I look at myself this week, I see a man um, trying to carry the church. Chris Lee reminded me that I'm trying to hold things together, and I didn't even realize it until he said so. Trying to keep the liberals and the conservatives in the same body of Christ and the church. Here's what I wrote to God in my journal this week. I said, I'm trying to hold it all together and make everybody happy. Hold things together between the gay thing and the Trump thing and the polarization and the pandemic and the black lives and the blue lives and everybody who's just so easily wants to cancel everybody, everybody else and cancel church. And I feel beset on every side And all this feels so missed the main point. That is, the church is called not just to action, but to contemplation. You know what Richard Rohr told us one time? 
kind of like a, off to the side. He said, hey, I know my whole organization is called Action and Contemplation, but there really isn't any action. It's just contemplation. Because action follows contemplation. As somebody said a few years ago, they said, if Jesus came back tomorrow, I believe 90% of Christian work would continue. An algorithm wants to pull the church apart and shove you off into a little corner. The only thing that will save us during this time is sitting just, just a few yards behind Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he goes off to pray and just out of earshot, there you and I are on our knees as well, paying attention, second gaze, contemplation, listening and waiting with Jesus as opposed to sleeping. Failure to pay attention to what's going on around you and you die alone. Jesus wasn't a pretend man. He wasn't some holy guy just faking the whole human thing. He was nothing but man, pure human. And that's why he had that week of weeks. And that's why this week is so tumultuous for him. He felt it all and he experienced all just like any of us would, except in some extraordinary way, he saw it through. And so we have to follow through in this week of weeks and take the journey towards the cross of Christ. And so I leave you with this piece of scripture out of Micah chapter 4, and we're going to treat it as a prayer. So just close everything out, close your eyes, and lower your head. And I'll pray this scripture. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills and people shall stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that we may, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And we all said, Amen.